0: The following is a sermon that was preached at Faith Lutheran Church in Sharpsburg, Georgia. For more information about our church or to hear past sermons from Faith Lutheran, visit GeorgiaFaith.com. Thank you for listening. For almost 2,000 years, God's people have celebrated the season of Lent, a 40-day walk with Jesus to the cross a time for us to remember that we have a Savior who is willing to suffer everything for us. And for a millennium of those 2,000 years, God's people have been getting together on this night, 40 days before Easter, on a Wednesday that they called Ash Wednesday, to start their Lenten walk with a particularly significant act. They put ashes on their head, of all things. Of course the ashes of Ash Wednesday have been used by Christians for a thousand years because it's kind of rich symbology. I mean, you know where we get the ashes from, right? The ashes come from last year's palm branches from Palm Sunday. So you maybe saw an email that said if you have your palm branches from last year, bring them in and then you burn them. I did get a text from Vicar this week asking where should he burn the palm branches and I said, outside. (laughs) He sent back, ha ha, because he didn't realize that one time we had a vicar who burned them in the sanctuary. I came back from lunch and this place looked and smelled like a Jimmy Buffett concert. (laughs) So now when someone asks where should I burn the palm branches, I never take that for granted. I tell them exactly to do it outside. Vicar did that. did a very nice job. But yeah, so palm branches, when you light them on fire, you're reminded of some things. You know, fire in the Bible is symbolic of God's judgment, of the purification that God takes sinners through. And you know, Ashes also, though, remind us of the fact that throughout the whole Old Testament, when people were in mourning or in repentance, they would wear sackcloth and they'd put ashes on their head. But maybe for me the most powerful symbol of ashes on Ash Wednesday is the fact that when you burn palm branches, all you get left is, you know, carbon and probably some other stuff. Mostly that's just carbon. That's the, uh, the building blocks of every living being. Right? We are carbon-based life forms. The reality is that every living thing is based on this, and every living thing, this is where it's heading. I mean, that's a sobering thought, that every person you love, every person you're ever going to love, one day will be nothing but ash. No matter how pretty you are today, or how smart, or how healthy, or how strong, in a not-too-far-distant future, this this is all you'll be. That's why the words that we speak tonight are words that come from the uh, from actually from the funeral rite, that one day will be spoken over all of us. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Ever since the day God formed Adam, the first man, from the dust of the earth and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, man had come from ashes. But that day that Adam and Eve fell into sin, it changed mankind's destiny from being life forever with God to being a life of just death deferred. And it meant that Adam would return to the dust that he came from and every one of his children would walk that same path. So there is something really striking about putting ashes on the heads of all the people in my congregation on Ash Wednesday because it reminds me that one day someone's going to speak those words over each one of us. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. I might not be the one to do it but guaranteed someone will unless Jesus comes first. And so what this reminds us is that we should always be ready to meet our God. Right? That's what this focus on mortality on Ash Wednesday is about, is being ready to meet God, whether that is coming soon for you or that's coming later for you. Here's what Jesus is talking about tonight. He wants to tell us what it means to have real repentance. What kind of faith is Jesus looking for from us? And he did it by telling a story, Um, and the context of the story says uh, that he told it to people who were confident of their own righteousness. Uh, They were looking down at other people. And so Jesus told them a story about what the kind of faith he really was looking for. Now, if you've grown up in a Christian church, you've probably heard this story a lot of times, and you might be tempted as I start to tell it to immediately jump to what you've thought about in the past, and and maybe start identifying or, or pointing our finger at the person who seems to be obviously in the wrong. But maybe tonight, remember that this is a story Jesus didn't just intend for that original audience. He intended it for you and me. And maybe start by listening to the story and asking yourself how you are like each of the men. You know, Jesus sets up a comparison. He says, two guys go to the temple. Two guys show up at church. And then he makes a... Uh, puts out two people that couldn't be more drastically uh, uh, you know, f- far apart in first century Palestinian life. He says, you got a Pharisee and you got a tax collector. Pharisee, that w- this would have been someone who the community would have seen as being upright, moral, does the right thing, is a good church-going guy, is a family man, uh, never treats you wrong in business. This is a guy you can model your life after. That's the Pharisee. That's what people thought about Pharisees. And then there was the tax collector. This universally was seen as someone who was a traitor because he was working for the occupying Roman Empire. He was seen as a cheat because the way they got paid was to cheat people out of their, their taxes, make them pay more taxes than what they owed, right? He was seen as the worst kind of person. So Jesus says these two guys walk into temple, They both go to church, and the the Pharisee, he walks up to the front, and he raises his hands, he looks up to heaven, and he thanks God that he's not like these other men. I thank you, God, I'm not like these other men, these evildoers, the adulterers, or even like the, the tax collector over there. I thank you, God, because what I do, I give a tenth of what I get. I fast twice a week. What he was really praying was, you know, God, thank you that there's really not that much wrong with me. And honestly, if you'd have known him, if you were friends with him at the club, or you met him at Costco, you'd probably agree. He would have been a guy who would have done the right things and said the right things. And he even did the things that God asked. You know, He gave of his income. He did even more than some of the things that God required. Fasting twice a week. Certainly this must be the kind of faith that Jesus is looking for. But then, remember, Jesus was telling this story to people who were confident in their own righteousness. And in his story, he turns their attention to the other man, the man in the corner, the man who wouldn't even come forward, the man who wouldn't even look up at heaven like you were supposed to when you prayed as a Jew, but hung his head and beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And here was a man who knew that his life was a mess, Anybody he talked to at Costco would tell him to. This was a man who knew that the only thing he deserved from God at the end of his life was hell. I mean, his prayer was saying, Lord, everything's wrong with me. Help me. And you know, the the words Jesus puts in his mouth actually even say a little bit more than that. It says, Lord, make atonement for me. Pay the price for me that my sins demand that I, that I can't. Lord, be the solution for sin that I could never provide. What kind of faith is Jesus looking for? I wonder how shocking it was for the people who were confident in their own righteousness that Jesus said that the upright Christian leader of the community did not go home forgiven but the tax collector did. Jesus' point is that real repentance, real repentance isn't about who we are or what we do. It's about despairing of it and clinging only to a God who's promised us mercy and atonement that we could never achieve. I mean, when you hear me read the prayer of the Pharisees, he's, he's praying about himself. He's really kind of praying to himself, really. Um, but the tax collector, he had absolutely nothing to point to. So all he could do was cling to the mercy of God. One went home forgiven. One did not. See, real repentance isn't about being less of a sinner. It's about finding a perfect Savior. Real repentance is about finding a real solution for sin. And the real solution for sin is not finding a way to polish up a little bit of your exterior's so that people think you're a pretty nice Christian man. No, it's about understanding the depth of our problems and also understanding the depth of God's mercy because that was his promise. That's why Jesus told this, and that's why he points you and I to this tonight, that real repentance means finding a real solution for sin, and the only place to find that is not in who we are or what we do, arrow pointing up, but only in the gigantic mercy of God. And if you had a chance before worship, I put a prayer at the front of the service folder that I said if you had a time, pray that beforehand. Maybe not everybody got a chance to. I want you to turn to the front page of your service folder. This prayer was written in 1549, has been used in Christian churches on this day for almost 500 years. Uh, It actually is a prayer that's intended for Christians to pray every morning during your 40-day walk with Jesus uh, to the cross. So maybe you take the service folder home and tomorrow morning when you get up, you join in praying this wonderful prayer that Christians have used for 500 years. I'm going to pray it now. Almighty and merciful God, you never despise what you've made and always forgive those who turn to you. Create in us such new and contrite hearts that we may truly repent of our sins and obtain your full and gracious pardon through your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.